Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week where we talk about all things science. My name is Claire and I'm in the studio once again with Stu and Chris. Hello. Hi. Hello, guys. Now, this week, Manisha is actually going to talk to us about a gene called the Wonderlust gene that could be responsible for why you like travelling. Could explain why Manisha's not here. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. We'll have to stay tuned for Manisha's report. Chris. Ah, well, I, hello, I am looking at a psychological phenomenon which you may have heard of, the bystander effect that has been, you know, it keeps popping up in the news, I think, where people basically stand by and watch bad things happening and don't intervene. Um, I'm going to be looking at that and seeing if there's anything that can be done to to fix it. Tell people to do something. Pretty much. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Stu, what have you got for us? Well, I was going to be having a look at food and whether or not different foods can help you uh, prevent disease or lower your risk of certain diseases. But I'm basically going to be looking at phytoestrogens and what they are and what they can possibly do for us. Are they a good thing or a bad thing? So we have the bystander effect, the wanderlust genes and phytoestrogen. On with the show. We all have, you know, that one friend that's always traveling or they're moving and they can't seem to make it through a lease agreement before they start searching <laughs> for a new place and they just can't seem to st- sit still. They're yeah. often drug dealers. Oh. <laughs> no, that's not true. I wasn't actually going down really? that route, yeah. especially since I was about to say that I'm one of these people. Oh, okay. I'm not a drug dealer. Okay. Thank you. But I think I am one of these people. I just... I can't like grow up and settle down as so many people have advised me to do i think by this point it may i could maybe blame it on my genes and maybe i just can't help it so today what oh. i yeah today i want to talk about the so-called wanderlust gene oh wanderlust yes very fancy very good the gene in question is actually called drd4-7r that sounds boring. I like yeah, Wanderlust. Yeah, no, I, I prefer Wanderlust, <laughs> but the name is actually really, really descriptive, as, you know, gene names tend to be. Um, so it's called DRD4-7R. DRD4 genes are dopamine receptor genes. It's a family of genes, and the 7R part of the of the name actually refers to the fact that there's seven repeats in this in this particular mutation of the gene. And mutations in the the family of DRD4 genes are associated with a number of behavioral and psychological conditions, things like ADHD or schizophrenia, anorexia. A lot of these um, conditions seem to have this DRD4 mutation mm. appear. 
But the 7R mutation in particular has been associated with high levels of curiosity and restlessness and novelty seeking along with things like ADHD or ADD. And actually about 20% of the human population has this mutation. The yeah, so the interesting thing is actually that this same mutation is linked to populations that show strong histories of traveling. Oh, right. Mm. Okay. Like like which populations? So uh, there's um there was a study in 1999 by Chen et al and they were comparing two sorts of migratory populations. Um and they found that these populations tended to have a higher um proportion higher proportions of the 7R gene. In the study they looked at micro uh, migratory groups and macro migratory groups. The macro migratory groups referred to those that had really uh, like long distance migration. So these are even the prehistoric migrations. So uh, all the way back to the original explorations of the world. So all the way back to what we may think of common ancestors in Africa and then the original societies and populations that moved and traveled further away from Africa to explore those lands. Mm-hmm. And this allele actually appears in about 85% of these different populations. And it's much more prevalent in populations and societies in say, the Americas, like North and South America, than it, it is in Asian populations. In micro-migratory populations and societies, on the other hand, we have populations that tend to move around a lot, but over shorter distances. So many nomadic populations uh, with regular patterns of relocating, and this allele is present in about 52% of these populations. And in contrast, the 7R mutation is much, much less frequent in societies or populations that are sedentary. So it's almost, it's almost absent in populations that have long-standing roots in the location in which they, they currently right. reside. Okay. Hmm. More recently, in 2013, uh, David Dodd, Dobbs sorry, actually um, completed a similar study to support these claims. And he suggested that the rest- restlessness or the curiosity was actually r- related to risk-taking and that those with this 7R mutation, they were actually more likely and more inclined to explore new things, to try new things. They were more inclined to explore new foods or places or relationships or take drugs. And these individuals were really embracing of change and movement and they they liked the diversity and the change in their day-to-day lives. Now, it would be wonderful to be able to package all of these traits up in a single, lovely, all-controlling gene, but as you can imagine, there's a bit of controversy over these findings. Mainly, it's that those conditions that I mentioned before, things like ADHD or schizophrenia, and other behavioral or psychological conditions, it's quite well known and it's quite well studied that these conditions aren't just controlled by a single gene. Yeah. It's a it's mm. a whole host of genes. It's a whole yeah, host environmental factors, exactly. genes all working together. All of these different things that are working together to come out with this outcome and to display these conditions. And because of this because of this, and because we know that these behavioral traits are quite complex, it would be very wrong to assume that we would have one single wanderlust mm-hmm. gene or a single yeah, yeah, or a single gene that can control your risk to take desires, or sorry, other way around, <laughs> your desires to take risks. And there was a meta a meta-analysis of the studies that have studied this DRD four seven R gene and it also shows that not always 100% of the time it is the 
the mutation associated with novelty seeking or curiosity and restless behavior. So it is likely that DRD47R has a role to play, but it's probably not the only one yeah. wanderlust gene. Yeah. But in either case, I like to think that at some level I can blame my travel bug on my genes. Do you think you'd be able to get tested for this probably mutation? And what if you don't find it? Do you have no excuse then? Yeah, I know. Maybe get a doctor's note for having to go away on holidays for like six or eight weeks. I'm sorry, but my genes are saying that I've got to go. Okay, so you might have seen it on the news, a recent uh, occurrence in China where there, a woman was attacked in a hotel in Beijing. It was caught on surveillance cameras and with her being, it's, it's not a nice story, um, she was beaten by uh, a man and tried, he tried to drag her into a corridor. This went on for three minutes uh, with both bystanders oh and hotel staff doing nothing to intervene. Um, eventually, though, uh, a female witness did intervene. The man fled, and you'd be glad to know he was eventually arrested in another city 750 kilometers away. But, yeah, this is kind of uh, – the video of this was sort of aired on the news. It has caused a lot of soul-searching in China. Um, and, look, there may be some cultural aspects at play, but this is certainly a phenomenon that is not unique to, to China or any other country. Uh, this is something that is known as the bystander effect, and it is one of the most uh, best replicated phenomena in social psychology, um, a field that is not exactly known for its ability to replicate research findings. Mm. Mm. Do but, they do they know why people stand around and watch bad things happening? Is is there a reason that people do that? There is. I've been a lot written about a lot of experiments done, and there are yeah, there are some good um, ideas, some some main ideas seem to be at play. I'll get into into that in okay. in a moment. Um, but yeah, the it has been studied basically ever since the nineteen sixties. It sort of came to people's attention following the murder of Kitty Genovese in New York in nineteen sixty four. Now Kitty Genovese, she was on her way back to her apartment in Queens. New York when she was again attacked by by a man she was stabbed she was sexually assaulted and murdered in front of well newspaper reports claim there were 38 witnesses uh, who failed to intervene um, according to the newspaper reports the attack lasted for at least half an hour uh, during which time she screamed and pleaded for help um, the murderer did attract attention of a neighbor then fled the scene then returned 10 minutes later and finished his assault so it was a very shocking crime that basically uh, people were appalled that everyone that these witnesses had not done anything to intervene. And so a couple of, of um, psychologists then went on to, to study it. Look, this is not the this is like the most famous case of Kitty Genovese case. There have been plenty of other cases um, that I probably shouldn't go through all the horrendous details because most of them are, uh, are pretty shocking. 
but yeah, it's a similar kind of pattern often of these these um, murderers or sometimes suicides or someone being sick and people not intervening. It's not always these kind of dramatic cases, though. Uh, you do find some uh, situations. The same sort of phenomenon occurs when you have things like you know racist or sexist abuse and people don't do anything when there's bullying and people don't kind of intervene. You also, I found out an article on sports concussion. Uh, you know, concussion in sports like head injuries and stuff like that, where they said they talked about the bystander effect, where you know you get say um, a sporting player uh, who gets hit in the head, clear bad um, hit, and all the spectators watching and all their teammates, and no one does anything um, because you know same sort of phenomena at play. Hmm. But it is perhaps I guess more serious in these um, cases of violent crime and things. There was a study that was done in America. They looked at statistics and they found that. Uh, there was a bystander present in 65% of violent victimizations in the data. Um, most commonly in physical assaults, there were 68% of them had bystanders present, um, less likely in robberies and sexual assaults. And generally, 48% of bystanders were judged by the victims as neither helping nor hurting. So basically, uh, there were bystanders in 68% of the violent assaults and half of the bystanders were just not doing anything, essentially. As perceived by the victim? As perceived by the victim, yeah. Right. I mean, because you would imagine in this day and age they, w- they might be calling for help or texting someone or something like that. You would want to hope. The victim? No, no, the bystanders. Yeah, well, that's actually an interesting thing is whether people, I guess, directly intervene or whether they essentially, yeah, call for help, as you're saying, like alert authorities and that sort of thing. It's interesting when you look at some of the reports, sometimes it is actually authorities themselves not intervening. Like there was a case of a man who basically went, uh, this is in, again, in, in America, I think it was in uh, California. This man basically walked into the ocean and stood there for almost an hour. Uh, his mother, His foster mother claimed that he was trying to drown himself. Um, emergency services turned up and said essentially they didn't have the training to go in there or someone else's job to do it. Uh, eventually, a good Samaritan went in to to um, to get him out, but he died afterwards at a hospital. Oh. So, look, these are these are these are shocking cases, and I guess like the um, the the reaction in China to the latest one has been people kind of looking at empathy, but it doesn't seem necessarily be to do with empathy. It's more to do the, with the way that people behave in groups. Uh, so as I was saying this, um, it was started after the Kitty Genovese murder, two psychologists, um, John Daly and Bib Latane, they started studying it. And they found that one of the main factors was something that they called diffusion of responsibility. And this is where, yeah, you kind of, the, when you're in a group, essentially it becomes no one's problem, effectively. So there's one experiment that um, Bib Latane and a woman, Judith Roden, did in 1969. They stayed in an experiment where they had a woman in distress. Uh, 70% of the people who were there on their own, they either called out or went to help the woman after they believed she had fallen and hurt herself. Uh, but if there are other people in the room, only 40% of them actually stepped forward. Uh, there's another experiment that I think really kind of clearly demonstrated that it's not just about empathy. Um, so this is a Let- uh, Latane and um, Dali again. This is in 1968. They had a situation where they had students, they put them in a room, um, either in the room alone or they were with two or three strangers to, co- to complete a questionnaire they were told to do while they waited for the experimenter. And there, while they were doing this, there was a, a little vent in, in the wall that they would pump smoke through, the experiments would pump smoke through. Now, when there was one student there alone, they would notice the smoke almost immediately, like within five seconds, uh, and go and basically alert someone saying, hey, there's a fire or there's smoke coming out of this vent. If there were other people, if there was a group of people in the room, though, it took them up to 20 seconds to actually even notice the smoke. So it was this. <laughs> now, the psychologist hypothesizes this is not just about kind of someone else's problem, but also about, you know, 
kind of social conditioning, like a cultural thing of when you're in a group, it's rude to kind of look around and and notice things. Uh, and they think it's just about, you know, people kind of keeping to themselves. But it does kind of show that even something that is directly, I guess, affecting your own health or, or life, people are kind of slower to react when they're in a group. And it's that thing, the diffusion of responsibility works in that you think that, well, if other people aren't responding, yeah. then, then maybe something, it's not a problem. Maybe I should yeah, respond. Yeah, why should I respond if no one else is doing yeah. it? Or yeah, even, or even like if, if, if other people aren't responding, maybe they know more than me. Maybe there's something that they know that I don't know. That's right, yeah. Also, sometimes people have a fear of being, um, doing the wrong thing. Mm. Or of, of um, yeah, being shown up by a more experienced um, volunteer, or sometimes it could be. So they're sitting there thinking, oh, there's someone else in the room who just goes, oh, no, 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 smoke always comes out of that vent. Don't worry about <laughs> yeah. it, kid. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So yeah, the question certainly is. I mean, it does seem to be a psychological phenomenon. As I said, it's been well replicated. Um, pretty much everyone seems to share it. So the question is, what can be done about it? Now there are places where laws have been introduced, like good, so-called Good Samaritan laws. You may be familiar with from the last episode of Seinfeld. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Oh, yeah. They got arrested. For they not got arresting someone. They did. They who got was getting carjacked? Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they're rather disappointing. I think last episode of Seinfeld it was. It was yeah, kind of, it was yeah. a bit of a doubt. There's a lot of cameos from you know favorite characters from yeah. the years, but yeah. Now, I don't know whether that's the best approach, um, you know, when you've got kind of a universal psychological phenomenon where they're trying to have laws against it and making everyone feel bad, um, punishing everyone is, is the way to go. And perhaps it is. I don't know whether those laws have actually been as successful or not. I've been able to get mm. um, some figures on that. Um, but one of the psychologists, um, John Daly, he was interviewed about that and he essentially said that he, ba- he basically wants to convince everyone that you you might think that you would do the right thing. You'd be the, the one person who sets forward, but you're probably not going to do that. He wants to explode that myth. <laughs> but what he wants to say is, no, I want, to, I want to teach you about the pressures that cause this kind of behavior. And so that when you feel that kind of pressure, when you feel you're in a situation and you feel that kind of, oh, no one else is responding, so it's okay, or, or that kind of thing, that you want to be alert to that and it's a cue that you might be doing the wrong thing and that you should perhaps behave a different way. So, yeah, it's, it's about that understanding the, the, the drivers and when you feel yourself falling for the bystander effect, actually counteracting it, I think, is perhaps the way to go. Pull yourself up. Pull yourself up. That's right. Do the right thing. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. It's not really news that plants have hormones uh, to regulate their growth and development. I've talked about a number of them on the show before. It might be news to some people. Well, it might be, but yes, plants do have hormones. (laughs) In fact, without hormones, uh, most complex multicellular organisms would just be lumps of undifferentiated cells. So what is a hormone then, exactly then? Well, a hormone is a chemical that's produced by an organism, be it Mm -hmm. a plant or an animal, that can... Or bacterium. They do produce hormones, but not in. Uh, they're not usually. They don't usually affect their growth and development okay. because they're single-celled organisms. Okay. Carry on. So yeah, so they they basically trigger different phases of growth and different. You know, so like there's various hormones that will trigger a plant to grow new roots, for example, okay. um, or start to flower, or drop their flowers, or drop their fruit, or whatever it might be. But as far as they go, plant hormones don't really seem to have any effect on the growth and development of humans or other animals in any direct way, which is 
a good thing because obviously humans and other animals rely for the most part on consumption of plants either directly or indirectly for our nutrition and energy requirements so if plant hormones had an effect on us we'd have to be pretty picky about what we ate mm. um but they don't. Otherwise, we'd lose our leaves. We'd lose our leaves or, yeah, our, our ears might drop off or mm-hmm. something uh, along those lines. But look, that's not to say compounds produced by plants don't have hormone-like effects when they're absorbed mm. by the human body. And that brings us to a group of chemicals I wanted to talk about. So a number of plants produce chemicals that are recognized by the human body as estrogen, which is the fe- one of the female uh, hormones. Um Produced by males and females as well, just in varying amounts depending mm-hmm. on um, which sex someone is. Uh, so they're classified, these um, chemicals that plants produce, as phytoestrogens because phyto means plants. Um, P-H-Y-T-O. P-H-Y-T-O, yes. Okay. So these are commonly found in a wide range of plants, including all of the Fabaceae family, which is the beans. Mm-hmm. And in particularly high concentrations in the genus glycine or glycine, which contains the soybean. This is where you get your oh, soy linseed bread that contains that the... Correct. the yeah. uh, linseed's also very high in phytoestrogens. Okay. Is um, that why that type of bread is women's well-being? That's yeah. right. That's why, yeah. Oh, that's why they sell it for that reason. For the phytoestrogen. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So the soybean has the most extreme specific name of all of the beans. It's called Glycine Max. <laughs> I don't know why they came up with that, but that's what it's called. <laughs> it's a scientific name. It's, that's, that's its actual botanic name, yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, it was yeah. the Maxis. I think because it's large, the, the seeds are quite large compared to the other glycines, which have smaller seeds. Okay. Huh. Um, but research into the chemical group isoflavones began when it was noted that rates of certain diseases were much lower in Asian countries. And we're talking about diseases like heart disease, osteoporosis, breast cancer, and adverse symptoms associated with menopause. So they're all much lower in Asian countries. So early hypotheses about why that would be suggested that the Asian diet may have an influence in prevention of these diseases, and specifically that high consumption of soy-based products may be the main contributor Now, the reason that they thought this was because isoflavones are treated by the body in the same way that the hormone estrogen is treated. So the body responds to this isoflavone Mm -hmm. as estrogen, effectively. And then all the flow-on effects are the same? Yeah, so all all of the hormone receptors that pick up estrogen pick up isoflavones and go, oh, look, it's estrogen, we'll just behave as if it was. Hmm. And they carry on like that. Huh. So if you eat a lot of soy, the body has a constant supply of estrogen beyond that which it can produce itself and it appears to alleviate the symptoms of menopause, lower the risk of certain other conditions, which all sounds great. So if we all eat more soy, we'll avoid heart disease and osteoporosis. But of course, nothing is ever that simple. Nothing's that simple, Stu. Never is. Um, So high estrogen exposure has generally been identified as an increased risk factor for breast cancer, for example. Not to mention exposure to estrogen in utero has effects on the sex differentiation of fetuses. So you get high estrogen in utero, then you're more likely to end up being a girl. And they've even found in various studies that... um, sons born to vegetarian mothers have 
a higher risk of having genital uh, deformation associated with high estrogen in the womb, but they're not exactly sure why. They've just found a correlation there. So isoflavones from soy behave generally as endocrine disruptors, and endocrine disruptors have been the subject of debate since the term was coined in the early 1990s due to the potential for synthetic chemicals to disrupt the hormone system of many animals, including humans. So when you say synthetic, it sounds bad, but when you say natural, it sounds good. Well, that's right. So the endocrine system is the system of hormones. It's, Mm. you know, the production of hormones and the reception of hormones throughout the body and all of that stuff. So endocrine disruptors were identified in a whole bunch of different environmental chemicals, Mm -hmm. some of them synthetic, some of them in concentrations, but from natural sources, you know, all these sorts of things, and and people started looking into it. Um, But because phytoestrogens from soy have been consumed for centuries by humans in Asia with little apparent effect, uh, the attitude attitude towards them in people's diet has been relatively relaxed. No one was really worried about it. It wasn't causing any problems in Asia. Um, There's a whole lot of people from Asia who haven't had any problems with them. Mm But obviously, you know, there there may be some benefits from eating a diet high in soy products, but there's a whole bunch of other factors that have to be taken into account, which haven't been really studied deeply enough to understand them. So things like genetics and other lifestyle factors and even potentially gut flora might have a huge impact on how uh, these chemicals are absorbed and and treated once they're in the body. Um, So basically, the jury is still out on the benefits or negative effect of soy and the associated phytoestrogens. And as usual, there is no magic bullet because this is human health we're talking about. And So does that mean I don't have to buy the specifically women's well-being bread? Probably not. All right. Um, If there's a premium price attached to it, I'd say almost definitely not. (laughs) It's good Um, to know. And, you know, maybe just eat less bread in general might be a good thing to do. Who knows? It's one of those things. Um, But look, it is a shame because if eating tofu could solve all of these health problems, it would be soy impressive. That's all we have time for you on Lost in Science this week. We've learned about how innocent bystanders can make a difference, um, why you should blame your parents for why you can't stay in the one place for very long, and all about how chemicals in plants can function like human hormones. So interesting. Lost in Science is recorded in the 3CR studios in Melbourne and broadcast around Australia. 
on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to get in touch, we would love that. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or if social media is more your thing, track us down. We're on Twitter and we are also on Facebook. Or come and listen to us next week when we get... Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.